Good morning, clerks. Welcome back to another episode of The Clerk Commute. Hi everyone, I'm Brendan and welcome to our first content episode of The Clerk Commute for the Surgery Block. Today we'll be, we will be discussing a general approach to right upper quadrant pain in adults. And I'm joined with my co-host Lauren. Hey guys, welcome back. Today's episode was reviewed by Dr. Alana Hosein, a staff surgeon at Trillium Health. Okay, great. So today we're going to present a case and I might throw a couple curveballs so that we can really show off the history and physical and not cheat with an early focus to make sure to confirm the diagnosis. So for today's case, we're gonna be seeing a 53-year-old woman who presents with one-day history of worsening stomach pain. The first thing you want to do when going to see any patient with stomach pain is to observe the way they look and behave for a few seconds. This can give a clue as to what is going on without even asking a question. Remember, there are many causes of abdominal pain, which can be a manifestation of a cardiac, respiratory, G, or GU issue. But considering they've asked for a general surgery consult, let's stick to some of the more basic general surgery presentations. For example, a patient presenting in liver failure and or gallbladder, gallbladder liver obstruction might look jaundice on appearance. Chronic liver failure patients especially may look volume overloaded and you may notice ascites, prominent neck veins, or ankle edema. Patients with peritonitic pain from appendicitis, for example, a very inflamed or infected gallbladder or perforated colon, will not be moving around much because it makes their pain worse. They will likely not sit or stand up when you walk into the room. Some patients who look sweaty, feverish, confused, or lethargic may make you immediately nervous that there is a serious infection happening. Alternatively, for people who are moving around a lot or writhing in pain, this might indicate that the cause of their pain is not causing peritonitis, for example, if they have a kidney stone. Great, Lauren. So our patient today appears sweaty. She's not moving much, she's groaning in bed, and she's not known to be jaundiced. Now moving on to the history, can you walk us through your approach to this case and give us some insight on how these questions helped you reach a diagnosis? Yeah, so the first thing I would want to know are her vitals. We've already eyeballed the patient, but I would want to make sure that she's not in any acute distress, distress such that her ABCs are not of concern. Good. I can tell you that her vitals are stable apart from a slight fever at 38 degrees Celsius. Her ABCs are fine. She's not in any acute distress. What's next? Moving on. The questions that I would start with would be the classic OPQRST. Onset is really important because it lets me differentiate between an acute versus a chronic problem. Oftentimes in general surgery, emergencies manifest as acute pain, which will likely increase my suspicion that it is something that may require us to take her to the OR. Once we know the position, we can discuss our chronic versus acute differential diagnosis. Okay, so why don't you ask me the questions and I'll play the patient for you. Sounds good. Tell me, when did this pain start? Um, it started after dinner, so it's been about 14 hours now. Okay, and did anything out of the usual happen before this pain started? No, not that I recall. And what did you have for dinner? Just a few slices of pizza. Alright, so I've got an onset and a possible trigger, fatty food. Next, I'll ask about the position of the pain. As I mentioned, the position is really important when, when investigating abdominal pain because you can really break it down into the four quadrants. I want to take this time to stress that people have different anatomy, and so the same condition is not going to present the same way in the same quadrant even between different patients. But that being said, using the four quadrant rule can be a really useful tool. So for the patient, can you tell me where the pain is? Yeah, so the patient points to her right upper quadrant just below the costal margin. Okay, the first thing this tells us is that she is not experiencing diffuse peritoneal pain, which could be a sign of a large peritonitic infection, most likely from a perforated colon, fistula, or viscous. In terms of specifically focusing on right upper quadrant pain, thinking about the anatomy of the major organs there, we are mainly thinking about the liver and the gallbladder. 
Next, I would like to know the quality of the pain. So what does the pain feel like? Um, it's a dull, achy pain. Does the pain go anywhere, move anywhere? It goes into the back, and sometimes I feel it in my right shoulder. Okay, and how bad is the pain on a scale of 1 to 10? 10 being the absolute worst pain you've ever experienced, and 1 being no pain at all. Uh, about an 8. Okay, and has the pain been getting better or worse since it started? It's been getting worse with time. Hmm, I see. And has this ever happened before? So the patient tells you that, similar to this pain, she's been having a pain a couple of times over the last few weeks, but this time it just won't go away. Hmm, and what happened those times? Well, it happened after I ate a couple of times, lasted for about two hours, and I felt really nauseous but never vomited. And then it also went away, so I haven't been to the hospital, but now it just won't go away. Okay, I see. And did anything make your, does anything make your pain better this time around? Uh, not really. Okay, let's take a breather at this point. We are not, not done with our history yet, but we are already getting a picture of something. To recap, the patient presented with 14 hours of 8 out of 10 dull pain localized to the right upper quadrant, which started after having a fatty meal. The pain radiates to the back and the shoulder and has been getting worse since then. The patient has had similar episodes in the past for a few weeks where a similar, came, uh, a similar pain came after eating, but then it went away. Brendan, do you have any idea what this is looking like? It's looking like some kind of gallstone pathology to me. That's right. Why don't you tell us more about gallstone diseases? Okay, so I remember that gallstone pathology is based on the stone's anatomical location. I'll walk you through in this order as well, going from the gallbladder itself to further downstream the biliary tree. Sounds good. Okay, so first stop. From the gallbladder, we have polylithiasis, and this is when stones are in the gallbladder and they are not causing any symptoms. The treatment is to watch and wait. Second stop, the stones have now moved to the cystic duct and are causing symptoms. There are two pathologies here, biliary colic and acute cholecystitis. Biliary colic is right upper quadrant pain due to cystic duct obstruction causing gallbladder distension. Pain may subside when the stone falls back into the gallbladder from the cystic duct. In biliary colic, the right upper quadrant pain has a sudden onset, usually after a fatty meal, and steadily increases in intensity for up to 12 hours. The pain often radiates to the right infrascapular area. The 12 hours cutoff is important here, as the pathology changes after 12 hours. The treatment for biliary colic is elective cholecystectomy if the patient wants one. When the pain persists for longer than 12 hours, it becomes acute cholecystitis. In this case, the prolonged duct obstruction and gallbladder distension leads to ischemia and chemical irritation. This can be further complicated by secondary bacterial infections with organisms like E. coli, Klebsiella, and Enterococcus. Because these are secondary infections, acute cholecystitis may have elevated white count and fever. Nevertheless, even without white count or fever, when biliary colic exceeds exceeds 12 hours, it becomes acute cholecystitis by definition. Of note, liver panel tests may be elevated in these patients as well. Diagnosis is confirmed by ultrasound, while treatment of choice is emergent cholecystectomy. Very good. I know you're not yet done yet, but I want to summarize the three pathologies quickly and see if there are any, any of these pathologies fit in our patient. Sure. Go ahead, Lauren. All right, so, so far we talked about asymptomatic cholelithiasis, biliary colic, and acute cholecystitis. In asymptomatic cholelithiasis, the stones are in the gallbladder, but not causing any symptoms. For the most part, this is an incidental finding on ultrasound, as the patient would be asymptomatic. Next, we have biliary colic, and this is where the stones are episodically blocking the cystic duct, causing gallbladder distension and subsequent right upper quadrant pain that radiates to the right shoulder. 
the pain lasts less than 12 hours, and the treatment is elective cholecystectomy. One step up from biliary colic is acute cholecystitis, where the pain lasts longer than 12 hours. The patient might have an elevated white count and fever, but might not. The treatment for acute cholecystitis is emergent cholecystectomy, unless the patient is not a, surgery for can a candidate for surgery. Then, medical management can be considered. Did I get that right? Of course. Thanks so much for the summary, Lauren. I think it looks like our patient fits the picture of acute cholecystitis. Would you agree? I think so, too. Our patient has right upper quadrant pain that radiates to the right shoulder. It was triggered by a fatty meal. It's worsening continuously, and it has been more than 12 hours. That being said, we should have a look at the other gallstone diseases before we draw our conclusion prematurely. Great. Okay, so third stop. The stones have now moved from the gallbladder and are in the common bile duct. This is called cholidopolithiasis. It is often asymptomatic, but can cause obstructive jaundice, biliary pancreatitis, and or cholangitis. The treatment is ERCP to remove the stones. Similar to when the stone was in the cystic duct, stones in the common bile duct can also get infected and cause ascending cholangitis, also known as biliary sepsis. Patients will present very sick. 25% of all patients with this presentation present with Charcot's triad, fever, jaundice, and right upper quadrant pain. Some patients will present with Renaud's pentad, that is Charcot's triad plus hypotension and confusion. When you see Renaud's pentad, it is superative cholangitis, and this is an emergency. For cholangitis, the best treatment is still ERCP to remove the stones. The patient will also receive IV fluids and antibiotics to settle that infection down. Last stop is gallstone pancreatitis. This is when the stone transiently blocks the ampulla of Vader, that the intersection point of the pancreatic duct and the common bile duct. The patient will present with epigastric abdominal pain radiating to the back, worse with food and alcohol, associated with nausea, vomiting, and distension. Of note, this pain is relieved by leaning forward or by bringing the knees up to the chest. In a small percentage of patients, you might see the Cullen's periumbilical peri bruising and Turner flank bruising signs. Of course, because the pancreas involved, is involved, we will see elevated pancreatic enzymes like amylase and lipase. Management of pancreatitis is largely supportive, but ERCP, ERCP can be used to remove the common bile duct stone. Amazing. Thanks so much, Brendan. Let's return to our patient. So she's tachycardiac, tachypneic, hypotensive, and she's febrile with a fever of 38.4. From a cardiac perspective, she denies shortness of breath, but she does have some retrosternal chest pain. On review of systems, she has nausea and she vomited once 30 minutes ago for the first time. Her vomit was unremarkable for bile or blood. She's had no diarrhea, constipation, or obstipation. Okay, so it sounds like her vitals so show some signs of infection. This would be in line with our suspicion of acute cholecystitis. Indeed. As well, I have her past medical history of the patient. She's been pregnant four times, delivered three, and terminated one pregnancy. Her last pregnancy, she developed gestational diabetes. She had early menopause at 47, but she's not on any hormonal therapy. She has type 2 diabetes after her last pregnancy was diagnosed 18 years ago, and she does have anxiety. Okay, and it's always good to know that our patient still has a gallbladder before we set her up for a cholecystectomy. Good one. Usually at this point, we will order some investigations. Tell me, Brendan, is there anything in particular that you would like to order? Uh, yeah. So since we're suspecting cholecystitis... I expect possible elevated white count and deranged liver function tests, so I'll order a CBC, electrolytes, liver function tests, and pancreatic enzymes. Because of her history of type 2 diabetes, I will add glucose and a hemoglobin A1c as well. In terms of imaging, ultrasound is the gold standard, as CT has low sensitivity for gallstones, so I'll be ordering an ultrasound. Spot on. Here are the results. 
As you, had, as you had suspected, her CBC was significant for leukocytosis with high neutrophils. Her other blood work was normal lights, including glucose, normal LFTs, and normal pancreatic amylase and, and lipase. Her ultrasound showed stones in the common bile duct with thickened common bile duct wall, diagnostic of cholecystitis. All right, we made the diagnosis. Lauren, what would your approach be to treating acute cholecystitis? Hmm. Based on this patient's past medical history, I don't see anything that prevents her going from the OR. So ultimately, we are headed to the OR for this patient. Before that, though, there are a few things that we can still do. Step one, we should manage her pain. Ketorolac is a good option, which is a strong NSAID, and we can give this in a single IV or IM dose, which relieves pain within 30 to 60 minutes on average. Step two, we also want to give empiric antibiotics, which will cover gram negatives. Step three is that we want to make this patient NPO, none per os. This is before any surgery. We don't want the patient eating any foods, which would make them more difficult to intubate and dangerous to intubate, in fact. Step four, we want to have her set up for the emergent cholecystectomy. Sounds good to me, Lauren. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about the complications of a cholecystectomy? Sure, Brendan. Overall, laparoscopic cholecystectomy is a pretty low-risk procedure. Major complications include bleeding, abscess formation, bile leak, bile duct injury, and bowel injury. Approximately 5-12% to of patients develop diarrhea, though in many cases the diarrhea will improve or resolve over weeks to months. Cholecystectomy has also been associated with an increased risk of right-sided colon cancer, esophageal cancer, and small intestinal cancer. This may be related to the effects of increased concentrations of the bile acid and the gut lumen as a result of the loss of the gallbladder, which normally acts as a reservoir for concentrated bile acids. Is that helpful? Definitely. Well, thank you so much for walking through this case with me today, Lauren. Let's summarize what we talked about in this episode. We reviewed the six major gallstone pathologies. One, cholelithiasis, asymptomatic incidental finding on ultrasound. Two, biliary colic, constant sudden onset right upper quadrant pain radiating to the right shoulder lasting for less than 12 hours. Three, acute cholecystitis, which is similar to biliary colic, but the pain lasts longer than 12 hours. Four, cholelithiasis, where the stone is now in the common bile duct and it may or may not cause symptoms. Five, cholangitis, which is a very sick patient with a common bile duct obstruction and infection, and six, gallstone pancreatitis. No problem. Great summary. That's a wrap for us. See you next episode, everyone.